What's up, everybody? Welcome to your latest installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. It is good to be back, and it is good to be back with a good guest. Here I have Leighton Woodhouse, a journalist extraordinaire, joining me to talk about the origins of the nihilistic left. What's up, Leighton? Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you here. So I've been on your show, and now you're coming on my show. Before we get into this piece you've written about something that seems has become like endlessly fascinating to me, which is like the creation of the new left in the 60s and 70s. What's your deal? What's your background? How did you come to a place where you're writing this article? (laughs) Well, first of all, I grew up in Berkeley. So, you know, a lot of this piece is about the Berkeley free speech movement. Um, Mm -hmm. I grew up, I was born, I'm middle aged. I was born in 75. So I was born you know, not too long after the the free speech movement in the aftermath of the 60s, you know, pretty well into the aftermath. But nevertheless, it was like when I was growing up, a lot of my my teachers were, you know, ex hippies. And like, it was all like much more so than it is today in Berkeley, California. Like the 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 legacy of the 60s is everywhere, you know, mm. do, like signs with, you know, like pictures of doves carrying the little piece of little leaf in its mouth like oh, i remember that all over like kindergarten and stuff i was less bougie of a town back then and and so you know it's in it's in my blood in that respect but i'm also just interested i've been interested in lately and thinking more and more about the evolution of the left because i think the left has become something unrecognizable to what it once was and it, it's you know i i believe that the left has changed significantly over the last over the course of the last few years but it occurs to me actually that during the 60s there were probably old school leftists who thought the same thing when the new left came into being and i think now it's easy to see the new left as being sort of a militant continuation of the old left but i think when you take a closer look it was actually a significant break from the old left and paved the way for what the left has become today Indeed. I mean, I feel like there's, I was talking to a friend about this who, you know, we we were both DSA guys and now we're doing different things. I mostly deal with Republicans. He tends to deal with Democrats. And we were talking about how, we were talking about your piece actually. And we were were talking about how one of the questions that is really difficult to answer and shouldn't be so difficult to answer when you're sort of trying to be like a democratic socialist is why isn't this the new deal left? Right. You know, that's it. Like everybody says that it is, you know, everybody like points back to the new deal as sort of what's supposed to be going on. And so little of what you're doing has looks anything like that original coalition. Yeah. I mean, when I, I used to, when I was excited for DSA, I'm no longer DSA, you know, I, I, I no longer find anything that they do sort of consistent with, my value or sure. my political outlook, but when they first when they first became sort of renewed, obviously they've been around forever. But when they first became renewed with this kind of new DSA 2.0 that came about in the wake of Bernie's run, and I, I was pretty excited by what was happening because I did think it was a renewal of the old left, which I still have quite a bit of sympathy for. You know, I'm, I I don't know what I consider myself politically, but I, I do have 
quite a bit of in common in terms of my political beliefs with the old like pre-60s left and so mm -hmm. i thought that it was kind of like i, I thought i thought it was a, a renewal of that because that's what dsa thought of it i mean that's what dsa is supposed to be dsa was around back then and mm -hmm. and 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 you know i think the people who were joining dsa at the time thought of it that way as well but it has you know as more and more young people came into it it evolved along with evolved maybe the wrong word it developed <laughs> developed yeah it morphed into into something much more like the mainstream woke left and identity politics left to the point where you know it, it's become now a caricature of of the most contemporary version of the left which is very identity politics based in in, in and you know part of my argument is that the left this, this woke left today has no consideration for social social class at all they've it's, it's almost a deliberate project that they've kind of expunged any consideration of of class of economic and social class from their intersectionality and dsa has come ironically to embrace that i might be being a little bit unfair to dsa here and oversimplifying it there's many chapters of dsa they have different institutional cultures but you're uh, in san francisco right and it yes. seems consistent with the types of policies that the DSA in San Francisco has pursued. Yeah, I'm in Oakland technically, but I, I write a lot about San Francisco and follow its politics and write about its politics. And I, I have not paid much attention to San Francisco DSA. To, well, actually, that's not true. I, I actually did a campaign ad for a for an SF DSA, <laughs> but that was a couple of years ago. And uh, but but I don't, you know, the, the D San Francisco DSA I think has become just a part of the blob of the sort of the progressive. There's this progressive establishment within San Francisco. Sure, we, yeah, we can get into you know if we need to we can get into this. It's just a little bit outside of the 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 the, the subject area, but there's this progressive establishment in San Francisco, which is like this radical progressive establishment, mm -hmm. which sounds like a contradiction of ter in terms, but literally it is very radical and it is very establishmentarian in in San Francisco, which DSA is just kind of like morphed into. Okay. So it seems like there's some lineage here between the new left of the 60s and 70s and sort of the post-2016 resurgent left, the post-awakening left, whatever we want to call it. These things all sort of happen with a brief period of time around each other in the mid-20-teens. Let me... Let's back up to your piece. What is the Berkeley free speech movement and like what are its values? So the Berkeley free speech movement emerged in, in what well, was it, 64? Mm -hmm. I might have that wrong, but I, I think 64 is when Mario Savio gave his speech. And uh, and it emerged from the civil rights movement. It emerged from the sort of the student arm of the civil rights movement. So mm -hmm. on the Berkeley campus, you know, there were a bunch of like, like privileged middle class white students and college campuses all across America who were participating in the civil rights movement, some of whom took, you know, very big personal risks and mm -hmm. were extremely committed and 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 made huge sacrifices and I think made a huge positive impact on the civil rights movement. I'm talking about the Freedom Riders and you know the folks who who mm -hmm. went and got their asses kicked at lunch kitchens in the Jim Crow South. And and there were at Berkeley I'm, I imagine that there were Berkeley kids who participated in the freedom in the in the freedom rides 
but but also they were very active across the bay in San Francisco. And mm. you know there was there was there wasn't legal segregation, but there was de facto segregation and dis- racial discrimination against workers and stuff. And so there were a lot of Berkeley students who were active in the civil rights movement locally. And and they and at the time there was no so they were like leafleting and doing tabling mm. and ed- education of other students on campus on Sproul Plaza, which is the main plaza, sort of the main quad. At UC Berkeley, and now that's just like you can't imagine a college without that, right? It's like, right, yeah. But but back then it was that was that was it didn't happen, and so it was the the, the university tried to kick them out. Mm. And by the way, some of these some of these students were like active communists, right? They were yeah. like, you know, they they got pretty radical. Nevertheless, you know, we we have a free speech tradition in the United States. And so the, the, the university tried to basically say they could do it. I, I believe that the way it worked is they said you could do it on city property, but not on campus. Mm-hmm. And then that sparked a backlash, which was not just about free speech. I mean, it was the, 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 the precipitating and sort of proximate factor was free speech on campus. The campus can't censor us from being able to engage in, in political speech on campus, but it was culturally about much, much more than that, which is some of what I get into in the piece. It was a rebellion against sort of the bureaucratic administrative state and the corporate bureaucratic sort of milieu that that middle middle, I'm sorry, middle class college kids were being groomed to, to be become sort of company men within sure, um, and yeah. it, was a, it was a rebellion against I mean, it was a rebellion against the 50s right. and 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 so that so it became you know a culturally enmeshed with of course the anti-war movement and the hippies and all that because there is a common thread even though those are very distinctly different groups like the free speech movement sds the hippies these are you know there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap between sds and 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 the free speech movement there's also overlap between sds and the hippies but these are you know, these are like category, these are different categories of like, you know, kind of historical objects to look at, mm-hmm. but there are very much common through lines. And that's part of what I argue is that there's a, there's a very common through line of sort of this, this embrace of individualism and this anti-institutionalism and anti-establishmentarianism that kind of brought all those groups into a common rebellious posture. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you bring up wisely in the piece, like, and I've talked about this in some of the stuff I've done about nuclear and the utility industries, where it's Mm -hmm. like, you have to understand that all of corporate America seemed like and often was folded into the war machine. Mm -hmm. And so when the anti-war movement started, it was, you know, they had good reason, I would say, or you could at least understand why they weren't really interested in making fine distinctions. Right. Between these things. Right. I understand, like I subjectively, I can, I, I, I very much empathize with what the perspective was from the, those college kids. Like, and I mentioned in the piece, you know, they're looking at a world in which World War II is a, is a, is a not distant memory. Um, yeah. It was their, their, a lot of their parents fought in the war. These are the baby boomers. So, of course, you know, they're very much known for their parents being veterans from the war. This was a war where there was, you know, a a genocidal campaign carried out Mm -hmm. where there were two two atomic bombs dropped, you know, war crimes on a scale to which the humanity had ever seen before. And then the Allied victory in the war did not usher in the kind of world peace that 
some may have been led to expect, it brought in the Cold War and the threat of nuclear Armageddon. And then at the same time, you have the Vietnam War, proxy mm-hmm. war for the Cold War, in which you know the atrocities being carried out were as barbaric as what we saw in World War II. And now you're seeing it through on your TV set in your living room, you know, and then the civil and then the, 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 the civil rights movement, the, you know, apartheid state in the Jim Crow South, they're seeing all this stuff. And they're like, this isn't, you know, this isn't a sign of a, of a healthy civilization. Mm-hmm. This is a sign of a very sick, demented civilization. And it very, does not accord with our humanistic values. So on a subjective level, I, even though I'm critical of this generation of that, of that cadre of student activists and certainly of their legacy, I do subjectively understand why they would be motivated to take radical political action at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So am I. I mean, in so you and I were on a call in with our friend Michael Schellenberger and a few other people, Shant Misrobian, who I believe is a good friend of yours, JD Haltigan in Canada, and then Anna Katchian from Red Scare. And we were all talking about Christopher Lash and his legacy and the idea of the culture of narcissism. And before that, I, I, I was like sort of going through some older Lash stuff to sort of reacquaint myself before we hopped on that. And I was going through some of his out of print stuff, including an essay in The Agony of the American Left, which is a short, like 120 page volume of essays published in the 60s, when he's sort of dealing with the students in this movement. Mm -hmm. And the closing essay is called like The Return of Political Controversy or something. And he points out basically what we're saying, like, he thinks that there's something to the desire for authenticity that's happening here, but that it risks too much by remaining just a desire for authenticity, mm-hmm. that there's a romance to the idea of being a revolutionary that is very different than the Orthodox Marxism, which is like mm-hmm. very interested in economic structures. Instead, they're taking their notes from like the post-colonial moment rather mm-hmm. than the Soviet moment. And that's, so they have Che to look up to. Right. You know, that's a very different, a different thing to have. And he does a great job of finding all of these things, including the Sproul Hall speech, which I want to ask you about here, but some speeches that were given in Rutgers, in which case one student was just straight up, I'm a nihilist and the more dead cops in the street, the more whatever is the better. Oh, like, whoa. he said, he like, said, I want to usually he was like, I want to fuck this goddamn country. I feel like that, that, that guy got cloned and reproduced. In <laughs> yeah, I was like, damn, <laughs> like they made him in the lab. Um, And, you know, I think that it's hard for us after the 60s and 70s to understand what it was like to live in such a vertically integrated corporatist society, Yeah, you know? So all of that is very sympathetic, like you said, but let's take it back to Sproul Hall, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, What is this speech you open with? Who gives it and, and why is it important? So it was Mario Savio, who was a, you know, sort of the, the most famous leader of the free speech movement at Berkeley. He gave a, a very impassioned and not so much eloquent, but impassioned speech <laughs> on, on Sproul Plaza, in which he, I believe the visual was that like the entire, the entire plaza is filled with students. Now I might be getting some of these details wrong, but I think he's, he's on the steps giving a speech. And then at one point, a police car enters the space. I'm not sure exactly what happened in terms of why the mm. 
police car was there. But the students end up surrounding the police car. And at one point, Savio is standing on top of the police car, which is a very, you know, kind of heroic image. This one squad car there, you know, the pigs. And then it's surrounded <laughs> by thousands of students. And then one of the student, you know, student leader on top of standing on the roof of the car with a bullhorn. And then the cops just sitting there like not knowing what the hell to do. Anyway, so that, that was kind of what the scene looked like. But when he was, he gave this speech, which started with an update which I get into, which is which is not the part that's most memorable. And then the part that is memorable is when he got into this, he basically said, you know, the the the, the Clark Kerr, who was the head of, of the of the University of California system at the time, had made given some 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 unfortunate quote in which I believe that the students had asked him to defy the Board of Regents. And then he said something to the effect of, can you imagine like a corporate president or ceo like defying their board of directors like of course i'm not <laughs> gonna do it. and so then of course like savio seized onto that and said said oh well if the university is a corporation and and the regents is our board of directors then we the students are the raw material who mm -hmm. are being processed you know is a very like like you know uh, convenient way to draw this metaphor that made the students into the oppressed into the, sure, the yeah. blog of the workers, the exploited workers. And then he said, you know, there's a time in which you have to throw your body upon the cogs of the machine and force it to stop. And he painted this picture of like the university and of the whole system, capital T, capital S, the system being this big, you know, bureaucratic, like machine that's just moving forward you know and that you have to like go and sabotage basically to stop which is how the students of that time saw the united states of america it was the hegemonic power there was a war machine that was per prosecuting the war in vietnam the you know the the military industrial com complex that eisenhower had warned against the you know corporate america at the time was dominated by these massive vertically integrated quasi-monopolistic entities. Mm -hmm. So everything looked like this huge scale and the individual was tiny compared to this these massive structures. I think this is how they kind of saw the world around them. And the University of California being one of the biggest public university systems in the world, you know, mm -hmm. very much fit into that mold. So that's the, that's the heroic part of the speech that everybody remembers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's sort of like I whenever I think of sort of the, the idea of just like what what were they called the Nifty Fifty, like mm -hmm. the major corporations that were running America or something like that at the time. And I think of the movie Repo Man, mm -hmm. where like all of the label, it's like the beer isn't Budweiser, it's just beer, right. <laughs> like and by like getting the advertising and just like naming the the product it calls attention to like how much advertising and sameness there actually is right in your right. everyday life. Right. Like that's the gimmick. Yeah. I gotta shit. watch that movie again. I haven't watched that movie in decades. Yeah. Like, right. It's a, it's a, a true classic of the time. So, all right. We've talked about the memorable moment, the sort of like student as Vanguard, something similar is happening in France in 68 right. around the same time. And the difficulties of creating the relationship between the students and the workers in France, mm -hmm. which is really like, there's basically a class rift that's happening here, right. right? It's the people who are being streamlined for white collar jobs and the people who've been to trade school, if any school at all, exactly. you know, people basically like my maternal grandfather, 
who had an eighth grade education, worked on a submarine in World War II, and then worked his way up in the GM line afterwards and became one of the management guys. Right. right? Like very different relationship to the political machines, to power, to the economy. Many of the unions were for the Vietnam War because they knew it meant more U.S. steel Mm -hmm. and all of these things, right? So there are some fascinating tensions that are happening here that I think show up in the uninteresting announcement part of the speech. Most of the country, which is bear in mind, was in favor of the Vietnam War, which is is easy to forget. Very easy to forget. And yeah, those guys, you know, those guys were doing well in the 60s, right? The the blue collar worker was doing fantastic, right? The, Mm -hmm. the, The blue collar worker in the 1960s was the most was certainly the most materially prosperous worker in human history, right? They were like, the you know the conditions here geopolitically are that all of the real rivals to the united states on the economic stage have been decimated by world war ii europe and japan namely are just are are not only has their industrial power been absolutely obliterated by the war but in order to rebuild themselves you know especially the axis powers depended upon foreign investment and and yeah. trade with the united states so you've got no no competition for the united states on the world stage and all and the whole world is just a huge market for us goods because they're all rebuilding and so so in that context you've got and the, so the 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 parents of the boomers you know they'd come back from the war they engaged in a wave of radical strikes in the 1940s. Oh, um, yeah. People forget that. Soon as, yeah. right after the war ended, they were just like, all right, let's go. We're getting ours, right? Yeah, we just, they really just went, hard. Yeah, they, they, they just went to Europe and the Pacific Theater and they saw absolute atrocities made these massive sacrifices. They were coming back and they were getting theirs, right? They were like, they're like, we're not just going to come back and be like, proletarian slaves like 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 workers were in the 20s and 30s and so they were came came back and they just to just to add on that because the other thing people forget is that americans weren't hyped to go into world war ii right they were hugely skeptical of it very ambivalent especially after the first world war and coming out of the depression and it was like an open conspiracy theory amongst the american public that like fdr had something to do with pearl harbor like (laughs) that that was like not that fringe of a belief Right. Back then, you know, it was not the way we tell it now. We all just came together, you know, to save Europe. It was a much more anxious, ambivalent time that has sort of been retconned to be like the moment of national union built on the back of the New Deal. And the Michael Tracy school would have you believe that perhaps they were right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sure, sure. But but it, yeah, so so they engaged in this massive wave of strikes, one of the most militant periods, maybe the most militant period of labor history in the United States. Mm-hmm. And and they achieved a great deal from that militancy. Essentially, they achieved a, a, a treaty of sorts with big business in America, which was, you know, the, the, the these big vertically integrated corporations across multiple sectors of the economy all agreed to allow the unions to engage in pattern pattern bargaining in which case basically all the unions representing a given industry would be at the table with the, the employers together and they would bargain one master contract across the entire industry oftentimes one master contract from one industry would kind of set the standards for a master contract and then another another industry and these contracts allowed for you know the famous like 
middle class wage of an industrial worker of that time where you could be a blue collar worker with no college education, own your own home outright, also mm -hmm. have a second home, have a own a cabin in the woods that you took your family to during the summer, you know, send your kids to public college, you know, have a retirement savings, like the things we all dream of today, that white collar workers today dream of, you could have as a factory, as an assembly line factory worker back then because of the this, because of the expanding, massive expanding American economy, and because of the achievements of organized labor and what they were able to, the, the bargain that they were able to extract from capital. So you can imagine like if you're in an you know, and then that so it had a couple of effects. First of all, the the unions became bought into the system. They became domesticated in, in a way. They they were no longer adversarial towards mm -hmm. capital. They were very much partners. They're these labor management partnerships with the employers. So they weren't the radical. You know, over over the decades following World War II, they became very much de-radicalized. Also, because of the pressures of the Cold War, like right. you know, at some point it was like okay. <laughs> you know, we got to deal with Hoover too. So yeah. let's like, let's sew it up. Let's get what we need and then just yeah. iron this bad boy out. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. So institutionally they became more conservative and then also, you know, on the rank of file level, if you're like a, you know, if you're, you're doing that well as a worker, you're inherently going to become more conservative in the sense mm -hmm. that like the status quo is working for you. So, so, you know, they were happy, you know, relatively speaking. And then, so the, the beginning of the speech, the, the part that caught my eye because, because of how unremarkable it was, where there was this, this sort of uh, Savio gives some in, introductory kind of housekeeping remarks to the crowd. And one of them is he's like, there's some painters for a couple of locals upstairs at the time on the second floor of Sproul Plaza while they they were doing this this the student protest who were painting the halls and he was like I've reached out to the unions he was basically tried to get them to stop to do a work stoppage while they're conducting their their action and he was probably ignored by the unions yeah <laughs> yeah and he's like so he's like you know I've reached out to them unfortunately I found that they're it broke my heart, but they're just as bureaucratic as the administration itself, which is like kind of fighting words, right? He's like the university, well, which is also cr crazy to think thing to say about some locals. Like yeah. you're not trying to get to the top of the UAW, right? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're talking about like local painters, like 101, <laughs> right? And my guess is he just didn't get a call back. You know, they yeah. they were just not interested in what these like you know what these like kids were doing. And, and so he was like, they're just as bureaucratic. He kind of painted them in the campus, the university in that sense. He was like, they're ju just as bureaucratic as the university. I couldn't get through to them. But then he goes, but you know, they're definitely not against what we're doing. Like he's talking about the workers themselves doing the painting. He's like, they're not against what we're doing. And you know, it would behoove us not to like have any like confrontation with them. Like, so there's this clearly this ambivalence, right? He's frustrated and disappointed and probably somewhat contemptuous of mm -hmm. the of the unions because they're not the radical unions of decades ago. They're not, they're not standing with the students and, you know, putting their, like, they're not putting their, their bodies on the cogs, like he's calling for the students to do. But at the same time, he's like, he's still a leftist, right? And you, you mm -hmm. like, so as a self-respecting leftist, he's going to be like, they don't want to make enemies of the workers and they, you know, mm -hmm it's not smart, but also because for their own self image, you know, they're like, so there's this very clear ambivalence that I think was very reflective of 
the ambivalence of the new left of this new student left to the old left and by the old left i mean the class-based mass movement organized marxist materialist left of the 1920s 1930s 1940s Mm -hmm. that that old in 1950s you know during the red scare so that like that whole that 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 leftist movement i think the the new left looked upon as their predecessors so they're like part of the you know they like they especially you know this is this is obviously this is the left wing that had a radical and like noble history of like you know even though turned to shit carrying out the russian revolution and you know all this stuff so it's like there was a lot to admire but at the same time it was like had many of the it it was part of industrial capitalism it was part of that old system that they saw as antiquated and moribund even just the way it was structured like you know the left was extremely bureaucratic like the communist left you know the communist party with a common turn you know just bureaucratically organized mass movement organized you know it was fundamentally based on the idea of like of like of like moving millions of un, unnamed faceless kind of like NP, <laughs> sure, yeah. NPC like you know foot soldiers like that whole whole mass party building thing you know was very much aesthetically fit into the critique that they had of the of industrial society as a whole this mm-hmm. bureaucratic human spirit stifling sort of suffocating colossal beast that needed to be taken down so that ambivalence i think is very notable because i think what what came out of the new left was uh, was a profound split from that old left yeah i think that's right i think i mean there's obviously just some oedipal stuff going on here some like (laughs) fuck you mom and dad stuff going on here that feels really really prevalent especially if we consider like who's sending their kids to college it's not just the newly you know upwardly mobile like steel workers, you know, it's also, you know, people who have now been sucked up into the managerial tier of society. Yeah. Which is like an important element to what happens here, right? So we have some, you know, in his immediately post Trotsky days, Burnham writes the managerial revolution. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of consonance between the 60s left and like what he's looking at. I think surprisingly probably to Burnham himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of research into like almost the sociology of the engineer Mm -hmm. as an archetype, because, you know, the engineer does not exist as a profession outside of West Point. Mm. I didn't know that. In the 19th century, Mm. right? There's like military engineer. So like artillery, Uh trench digging, stuff Uh like this, Uh right? It's only once things like the railroads and the utilities show up, Mm-hmm. that it starts to become its own profession, that has its own culture. The Anglo relationship between engineers and workers is very different. And management is very different than say the Japanese, mm-hmm. where you can expect the manager to be on the floor with you often, the engineer to be on the floor with you. There's a more shoulder to shoulder relationship. In the Anglo world, it was top down. Mm-hmm. White collar guys are in their office and they literally overlook everything you're doing. Right. <laughs> you know, and engineers always tended to side with management. Very mm-hmm. rare that they sided with the workers in disputes. And so you have kids that are coming already from that class background and are almost rearticulating it in a different way than the 
company man that their father is. Right. And I think one of the ways that gets articulated is the surprisingly subsidized by the UAW Port Huron statement, which is something you can get into here. So like, I think most people know what that is from the big Lebowski because <laughs> he works on the original first draft, not that sellout shit that's actually <laughs> famous. I think he says in one moment in the movie. So what is the Port Huron statement and, and what, what are its like, what's its ethos? Yeah, so I was also surprised to learn that the UAW had underwritten that conference of SDS. So Students for a Democratic Society is the group that adopted the statement. And and SDS was a, you know, a, a radical student, a radical arm of the student movement led by Tom Hayden, famously. Christopher Lash hated, by the way. I fucking despise Tom Hayden. It, 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 yeah. it makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> by the way, I was, I, I was before he died. I actually was kind of friends with Tom Hayden when I, no I, I lived in LA, and we worked out of the same office, and we became very friendly and and knew each other fairly well. But uh, but anyway, so the per, so the SDS had this conference in Port Huron, Michigan, and adopted this statement, which was which Tom Hayden wrote and it was the manifesto of the new left essentially this is what it became or at least that's how it's been remembered historically and it is very very much a manifesto of it's very self-consciously a manifesto of a young elite like the mm. from the very first sentence in which they say we are the children of I forget the exact words but like we are basically the educated children who grew up in at least moderate comfort you know so Tom Hayden was making no bones that they're like he's not pretending that they're salt of the earth right um, and, and almost and, refreshingly honest about that totally totally you know I thought yeah I, I find it admirable yeah. but but uh, but you know they like we look back on SDS as being the subversive movement that was you know that was dedicated to sort of taking down the status quo and it was and it was it was manifestly that you know the sds the split and you know one faction of it became the weather underground but 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 it, but it was also it is what i argue in my piece the port huron statement was was a manifesto of the emerging professional managerial class mm -hmm. and, and if you look at what was happening economically at the time so the pmc as a as a class i think is 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 the sort of the umbrella shorthand that we use for this class that emerged at the time of of industrialization in the united states and fordism which does not fit into the traditional Marxist model, the 19th century Marxist analysis of capitalism. In the 19th century, capital, you know, you had a factory and you had the owners and you had the workers. It was mm -hmm. quite straightforward. The, you know, the owners would come in with their fucking top hats and monocles or whatever, <laughs> and, you know, and they'd, 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 they'd have a foreman or whatever, but they'd, and they, but it was basically them and whoever was on the floor managing the day to day. And then everybody else was a worker and they were all interchangeable and the labor was extremely simple. It was not, this is not stuff that you needed an education to do. It was literally just your, you were using your physical, the power of your, the human body. And this is what Marx writes about very explicitly in Capital, you know, workers are giving their their physical labor power is what they're selling to the owner. Mm -hmm. Then you have, but then you have Fordism. You have these the expansion of these corporations and the, the government into these massive bureaucracies. And 
as the, the they become these massive bureaucracies, they have all these needs that were, that didn't exist at the time of Marx that Marx wrote. The need for the scientific management of of, of human organizations, for example, and also the scientific management of, of industrial processes, of the 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 machines, the R and D that goes into creating these products. Right. So just real quick, I think if people want to find like sort of the ultimate histories of this shift in America and in Germany and the UK, there are really like two books to really consult for that. And they're by the same guy, Alfred Chandler. And the first one, which is his most famous, is called The Visible Hand. And it's about mm-hmm. the late 19th century managerial revolution, mm-hmm. where as capital starts to intensify and it's integration becomes more complex and more refined. And as frankly, people get more innovative in industrial processes, it creates a need for new schools of management. These are schools that people that created the New Deal, David Lilienthal, and I forget his name, first name, but Cook, who ran the Rural Electrification Administration, both had both written books on the art of management Mm. and how it works, right? So these things were sort of baked into each other. And then the other book that Chandler writes is called Scale and Scope. Mm-hmm. And it takes a look at the ways in which industrial development happened from the late 19th to early 20th century in Germany, the UK, and America. Mm. And how there are basically like different cultural dimensions to the expansions of those physical industries. Mm. That I got to read this. Yeah. The second one's out of print. I have a copy. It smells like a dirty Xerox machine, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's quite informative. So just, I always like to throw a little bit of bibliography out there for the extra curious. Yeah. So, so not only do you have all these new, pro- new professions emerging within the corporate sector itself, but then of course you need people to educate those folks. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have, you know, you have this ballooning of higher education and, and then along with the ballooning of higher education in terms of like technical skills to, to train this, this class, of course, then there's these cultural kind of class-based status, cultural kind of fields that emerge as well, that in order to be a, you know, a proper member of the elite, you're expected to know. So, the, so, the, so then there's the education sector and there's all these, these professions that emerge, which do not fit neatly into the work owner sort of categorization. But by the way, some of these professions also were around during Marx's time, you know, like being a like a, a doctor for a physician mm-hmm. for example that's a mm-hmm. you know but marx uh, to my knowledge didn't you know kind of like conveniently kind of sidestep i mean they weren't it wasn't it wasn't a, a I, I i can see how he could conveniently ignore it it's not as if you know the 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 existence of physicians was going to pose some massive obstacle to his analysis of capitalism but he did like to, as far as i know he didn't uh, he didn't even attempt to kind of figure out how they fit into his very reductionist picture of, of 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 capitalist classes. Anyway, this 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 professional managerial class explodes. These the kids who are going to UC Berkeley and NYU and the University of Michigan and all these other schools are very much they are the future leaders of the professional managerial class. So the, the the elite tier of these schools they are the future leaders. At all these schools they are the future members of the professional managerial class. And I think that if you look at the Port Huron statement, it is very clearly a manifesto of the the of a cadre of people who expect to be the leaders of the next social order. And they're saying 
this is what it's going to look like and this is what it's not going to look like we are no longer going to be subject to we're no we're not we're no longer going to be content to operate the war machine we're no longer going to be corporate drones who are enslaved to you know just like the the inertia of this big bureaucratic juggernaut we are going to be free autonomous individuals who are self-actualized and who celebrate our creative human spirit and it's this got very humanistic very individualistic statement which you know which sounds great and noble and admirable but when you look at what they're rejecting what they're rejecting is all that ugly stuff i'd mentioned before in terms of the war machine in terms of you know a state that tolerated the existence of jim crow all this stuff but what they were ultimately rejecting was the new deal right the like the new deal right which also tolerated jim crow right like also told, brought yes. the southern democrats into the fold yes to there's make itself to possible there's much to be criticized of the new deal but there's also much to be admired of sure the new deal. totally yeah and 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 so like when you look at and, and of course now from 2022 we look back upon the new deal as being this huge progressive achievement right mm -hmm. and at the time of the passage of the new deal the conservatives were looking at it as fucking bolshevism mm -hmm. and so and so like it was at the time a big prog progressive achievement even if it was far from perfect and they were rebelling against that so it's sort of like and and the and they weren't necessarily rebelling about they may aesthetically they were attacking it from the left but my argument is that they weren't really attacking it from the left i mean they were attacking it from something they weren't attacking from the right either but they were attacking it from this humanistic individualistic standpoint which at least superficially and i think more than superficially has a resemblance to the attacks that the new deal faced from the right from the explicit right from Barry Goldwater, right? Like the, the people who were mm -hmm. saying, the, who are attacking the welfare state. Mm -hmm. It's not as if the rhetoric that they used at the time was, you know, we want to screw over workers. The, the rhetoric was, this shit is un-American. We are like, this, this is, we are, Americans are individualists. We, we are self-sufficient. You know, we are like, we value kind of individualism and individual acts of yeah, well and it's a violation of the constitution for the federal government to go into business against private entities right, right. that was that's uh, like one of their big like fundamental things that they think it's a radical altering mm -hmm. of the american regime in a direction that bears no correspondence to founding intent and right. the wiggle room there is on like how you read certain parts of Hamilton showing up in the constitution. We don't need to get into that, but like that, that's also a big part of it too. And so what I hear, I've talked about it this way is that what we see in the sixties, not just from, this is sort of the brotherhood beneath the skin between Tom Hayden and Barry Goldwater and mm -hmm. even Richard Nixon, who, when he gets his second term in office is like, I'm going to come after the administrative state. And mm -hmm. then to no one's surprise, Watergate happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is the return of the Jeffersonian lowercase r Republican instinct mm -hmm. yeah. of individual liberty against varieties of centralized tyranny. Right. And so what they're they're pulling from a common fund of American traditions that had been basically neglected for like 30 and, years. And, and if you look at the most radical manifestation of the 60s counterculture, 
you know, it was the yeoman, it was the Jeffersonian yeoman farmers, right? It was totally, the yeah. land movement. It was like these guys, these hippies who go out and start these communes. But what were they starting? They were starting autonomous, localized, gov locally governed, relatively self reliant, self sufficient agricultural communities. And this is like, mm -hmm. This is like very much an embrace of a very old school American ideal, whether they knew it or not. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think that like one of the things that's been and this is really sort of like a sort of follows from your piece or something that I thought about because it's something I think about a lot is that like at a certain point, left and right isn't necessarily helpful, not because they're meaningless terms, but because I think they can distract us from the tensions that are already within the American tradition and have been handled by both sides for various reasons at different times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is getting further afield of what I, I wrote in this specific piece, but you know, I, I thought about that as well because I've read, have you read Albion seed before? No, I haven't. That? Like I, that's, that's like a fifth time I've heard the name of that book this week. Like it's been on my queue for like a couple of years and I'm like, maybe I have to just fucking buy it now because this is the, like, yes. I've heard it like literally twice a day, every day, this whole week. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I, I read it recently and, and it didn't knock my socks off and, and it, it's, it's very much like Max Weber in the sense that if you've ever met, read Weber, it's not as if, it's Weber reading Weber is totally different from reading Marx. If you mm -hmm. read Marx, there are like paragraphs that just move you, right? It's just mm -hmm. like he was so articulate and there were so many astounding insights that you're just like, holy, the brilliance just just shows through right away. To me, it's mm -hmm. like New York City. It's like you go to New York and you're immediately dazzled, right? <laughs> if you go to LA, LA is a great town. I lived there for 12 years, but you're yeah. not immediately dazzled. It's like your strip malls, highways. You have to be there for a while and then and then it kind of shows through. So the experience of you reading Weber is very much like like it's a lot of it is incredibly dry and it's like gets into like like really technical details about like the structure of the bureaucratic, the legal office of in medieval Europe. Wow. And then and you're like and it's very dry. I mean, he wrote his dissertation, I think, on like Roman trade law. But like mm -hmm. but, but but then when you when you read enough and it starts to come through and dawn on you, you're like, oh, yeah, you, I start, get, to, you start to see the vista, you see the world totally differently. You're like, yeah. holy shit. And that's like so David Hackett Fisher, that book is very big. And mm -hmm. but, it, but it's like that because it goes into exquisite detail about like you know how the different, different colonialists just constructed their houses, their preferences mm -hmm. of their of, of the ways they cook their foods. But then when it all comes together, you're like, oh, okay, I I, I get why this is such a classic book. Anyway, one of the stories he tells is about, you know, he's, he writes about four generations of not four generations, four sort of waves of, of migrants from England mm -hmm. into the American colonies from different parts of England with radically different cultures. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the Scotch Irish who, 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 that's the most kind of the sexiest of the four. Yeah. That's Appalachia, in, right? Yes. So come in and colonize Appalachia and then eventually moved into the deep South and, and into Texas and, and, and the Midwest and eventually to California with the Okies, you know, mm -hmm. um, Southern California, but, but the Scotch Irish, their history was like they were from along the the Scottish English borderlands in Northern Ireland, that area, mm -hmm. which was in which was constant warfare for like five hundred years, <laughs> totally 
total lawlessness. Every time anybody, any like king tried to come in and assert some sort of authority, they would just be like, there would be just be mass, mass bloodshed to the point where at one point, I think Fisher quotes like, no, no, it was in something else I read where there's like the, the parliament passed a decree where they were like, if you're in this region and you meet a Scot, Scots person, here are all the things you are allowed to do. Rape, murder, pillage, name, <laughs> like all this yeah. shit. Fine, you can do that to anybody you encounter. It's like literally an act of parliament. Um, yeah, and so like these people were were scrappy as fuck, and they're like, and and any time they ever encountered government, it was always an army that they were fighting. Right? They like to them any assertion of 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 sovereignty over them was seen as an oppressive invasive force coming in so this is where like a lot and so they they came in the scotch irish wave which came into the appalachians and a certain had those values of like nobody's coming in here and telling us what the fuck to do mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that became the sort of the cultural genesis of, um, of america's unique libertarianism yeah and oh absolutely we see now as right wing but when you look at the history, you're like, these guys were the underdogs, right? These guys were like, you know, or you look at the, the labor fights that happen in coal country, which is in Appalachia. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And how long it takes Mother Jones to make her way in there because it's on such hard lockdown and how much work the coal industry had to do to basically put down what was the natural resistance of yeah. people who'd grown up in the scotch irish culture there and how brutal those labor fights ended up being like some of the most murderous in american history which has one of the most violent labor histories in the entire developed world See, this is this is where the left's analysis of this stuff becomes such a fairy tale and so so moronically simplistic because if you asked like a leftist including like a red rose emoji person they would probably explain the level of violence that took place in those strikes as a consequence of like you know just how particularly brutal the capitalism was in those instances mm -hmm. all just like you know a self-defense against the invading capitalist class which to me not only simplifies history but but is also kind of a diminishment of the human agency of those workers and the culture they came from because if you look at the culture that they came from like fisher writes about this one example of of a, of a fight between a guy from kentucky and a guy from west virginia and they're like and and this was a normal thing like they're like the guys would get into these like pit fights and like a crowd would form around them and they just fight to the death and they go it goes into exquisite detail about the guy poking the other guy's eyeballs out and like yeah. like last it's just like it's the most violent shit you've ever read and it's like the, some on some court mccarthy shit yeah the, yes the guy's already got his eyes poked out and a bunch of other like basically mortal wounds and he's still fighting like he's yeah. still fighting until he loses later the the kentucky guy loses and and like the, these fights they had to finally like the 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 state government had to make them illegal but for a long time this is happening legally and so it's like like yeah that's your pedigree and that's the pedigree that came from the the 500 years of fighting on the on the on the border of of scotland and england and that is the pedigree that led to the militancy of the mine workers and 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 their battles. And it, there's a much more interesting history to me than just like this reductionist shit about you know workers are sure. all wherever they are 
And right. All... I think that there, there could be sort of like a crude, I would say like a, a crude Marxism or something like that, that right. boils it down to that, that I think is actually like a betrayal of some of the nuances of a lot of Marxist thinkers who are trying to account for all of these things. And I think that where we're going with this is that the Port Huron Agreement has a statement for this new managerial class that is now taking over the reins from their parents mm-hmm. who oversaw the management of the highly industrialized U.S., but is now turning into an deindustrializing global empire, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it has different management needs over different you know, management materials, including human capital. They have what you end up calling a progressive libertarianism. Yeah. And so yeah. like, what, what does that mean? So I think, so, so again, like, you know, you have the S, the port, Huron statement, and then you have the free speech movement, you have the anti-war movement, you have the hippies, you have the back to the land movement. And this is a progression from sort of a, from what starts in a, as an assertion of sort of the moral principles of the, of the inherit, of the, the heirs of the ruling class mm-hmm. who are saying, we're going to make this, we're going to be more enlightened, benevolent kind of a more benevolent ruling class that becomes progressively like uh, extrapolating from those very principles that Tom Hayden articulated in in that statement about sort of the autonomous self-actualization of human individuals becomes increasingly more as it becomes increasing as the 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 stakes rise as the as the reaction from from you know their adversaries becomes bloodier and bloodier you know with a with a with the the DNC riots in Chicago and all that mm-hmm. stuff, you know, the the like the hippies drop out and go back to the land, and it becomes increasingly, I think, libertarian in in character, as a rejection of the big, you know, the state fulfilled its role in their imagination of being the uh, uh, oppressive, colossal, you know, a giant that mm-hmm. juggernaut that they imagined it to be, as it rolled over their generation of of protesters. And so, you know, naturally they became much more like more and more dug into the idea that, 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 that into their original principles about like the individual Uber Alice, you know, the individual mm-hmm. over this, this big cold corporate bureaucratic tyranny. And so I think there's this very libertarian mindsets, which was present in the Port Huron statement becomes more pronounced, especially in California. And, uh, and that becomes, you know, at, and then as the sixties end and roll into the seventies, these communities didn't last very long, right? The longest one lasted maybe a decade or something. Most of them mm-hmm. fell apart within a few years based on self-governance issues. And these people went back to the cities that they came from. And, and you know, the 60s chilled out into the 70s and they became, they a lot of these guys, you know, a lot of them sold out. And then a lot of them became, tried, found some sort of compromise, right? Where they, they entered back into mainstream society, but tried to reflect the values mm-hmm. of their of their youth, and and so a lot of that is where like the personal computing revolution comes come, comes from in the Bay Area, where people came back and and carried out their sort of their sort of subversive individualistic values, but in a corporate setting. You know the 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 the, the mythology of the entrepreneur starting the company in their garage is is you can see sort of the rough outlines of the heroism of the 
the the of the hippie going and tilling you know tilling the soil and oh totally i mean that's the you know you borrow from from counterculture to cyberculture i think people really undersell the whole earth catalogs mm-hmm. impact on the society we live in now especially because it creates sort of the first forums that people that would still exist by the way like people mm-hmm. are still on the well like wow, it is, really? yeah yeah, I've so people can go back in one of my more recent interviews with Kat D, default friend about this, but she's like gone and checked it out and people are still there. Um, I gotta check that out. Yeah, still doing it. And that really makes the culture we are now. And I'm glad that you brought up Silicon Valley because I think that helps us thread the needle on the transition of the immediate post-war generation to what become the countercultural boomers. Because mm-hmm. The civilianization of Silicon Valley is also built on the U.S. war machine and its R&D department. And like, (laughs) there are all sorts of Cold War reasons to look into the internet. People could check out Yasha Levine's Surveillance Valley for Mm -hmm. sort of like a history of of that. Like, I certainly disagree with Yasha about a lot, but he did a good history Mm -hmm. there. And of course, the internet itself was a project of DARPA. Right, exactly. It's a project of DARPA. And so... You know, you have Stuart Brand, you have these, you know, former Grateful Dead people who do sort of the, you know, you know, the Bill of Rights of Cyberspace or whatever it is, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And now sort of here we are. We have this highly atomized, identity fluid, progressive, almost structurally progressive internet culture that now takes up most of our lives. I think that's the strongest inheritance from the new left. Yeah. And the current left has grown up on the internet now. Yeah. And has embodied some of these elements. And one of the elements that you point out is that there is a danger in the progressive libertarianism of a type of nihilism. Mm -hmm. And you also argue that that's like really visible in San Francisco. So why don't you walk us through that? Sure. So like one, I didn't write about this in the piece, but one example of a very straightforward sort of where you can trace that through line very clearly is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yes. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) EFF came directly out of that Stuart Brand milieu, right? And, and, uh, and it represents, you know, sort of the, the, the libertarian sort of the, Mm -hmm. the free and open internet. Mm-hmm. And the libertarian mindset of 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 that generation, the through line is very specific from counterculture into cyberculture into EF into EFF libertarianism. And EFF has done a lot of great things, but they've also done a lot of things. Like, you know, participated very actively in in trying to suppress any sort of like surveillance of even like drug dealers in San Francisco, right? Like, right. like, you know, which is reflective of their value of the, their sort of libertarian values. But this is where like, you know, more influential in that space has been like ACLU, but the EFF has that direct connection back into, into the sort of the yeah. revolution. But, you know, in, in San Francisco, so to, to just flash forward to today, and this is some stuff I've been writing about recently. So we've got this massive addiction crisis in the Bay Area, <clears throat> and it's like worse than you can imagine. Like you go to San Francisco, and it's just like it's dude, it's fucked up. Like it, it is some of the darkest shit I've ever seen in my life. You know, like it, it's yeah. like I mean, Skid Row is really bad in L.A., but yeah. Skid Row's been bad for like ever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just a sacrifice zone, which isn't to say that it's acceptable, mm-hmm. but it has become acceptable, and it's gotten and, worse for sure. But like. Dude, the shit I just saw, like even in People's Park, 
mm-hmm. yeah was like crazy i was like dude this is this is like a public park well that's this the difference it row is awful but you can ignore it like you you like it it is it is it is as you say it's a sacrifice zone yeah, no one fucking goes downtown in la unless you work right. for the city or something yeah Whereas Tenderloin is right in the middle of downtown San Francisco and it's filling out into this, into South of market, which, which, which is where like you have the open air drug market in front of these luxury towers for tech workers and, 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 you know, and these tech companies, you know, Twitter, like right in front of Twitter. And so it's like right in the middle of downtown and, and open drug use and open drug dealing. Mm-hmm. Cops standing around doing nothing. And, uh, and so like the latest stuff that I've been writing about is like, you know, there was a, there was a, there was a, like once in a while you have a cop that actually decides to do their job. And there was like, there's this one cop named Daniel Solorzano who is Nicaraguan and Mexican by ancestry. Spanish is his first language. And he arrested. I already uh, know where this is going <laughs> with that qualifier. I already know where yeah, this is going. Yeah. <laughs> so he arrested, he arrested a bunch of drug dealers. The thing to know about the, the drug dealers in San Francisco is that the ones who are f- the professional ones, like there are some, you know, people who just whatever sell drugs just to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. But the professional drug dealers are just the ones anybody gives a shit about. The professional full-time drug dealers are all supplied by the Sinaloa drug cartel. And they're all Honduran nationals because the Sinaloa drug cartel recruits them from Honduras and smuggles them in. It's a business, right? It's a pipeline. It's not an organic thing where mm-hmm. everybody just signs up to be a it's like they are specifically recruited from honduras brought in so they're all honduran um and by honduran i don't mean ethnically i mean nationally they are honduran yeah. and uh and and so this cop arrested a bunch of honduran drug dealers and then the public defender along with the aclu has accused him of being racist because he didn't have a diverse cast of characters who he had like, <laughs> like yeah dude you, know, you gotta do dei on your yes, arrests yeah, on I'm the like, block baby well not only that but it's like the sinaloa cartel needs to do dei like <laughs> in order in order for us to be able to arrest their fucking dealers so 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 like and then another example is like there were these stay away orders that the city tried to pursue where you're they're not arresting drug dealers and throwing them in the prison they're they're merely saying you're going to wear a tracking device and you can't come into the tenderloin. You can actually come into the tenderloin if you clear it with us first, like if you have a legitimate appointment mm-hmm. or you're visiting your grandmother, you can come in, but you have to tell us when and where and for how long. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you can't come into the tenderloin. Now, all these guys live in Oakland, right? They're, it's not, they don't even live in San Francisco. This is not a difficult thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, most people steer the fuck clear of the tenderloin on voluntarily basically this is just saying okay they can live their lives they can by the way they're all undocumented as well so it's like it's like i got i'm I'm very pro even undocumented immigration but it's like we're making accommodations for people who aren't even allowed to be here and Mm -hmm. and but 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 the city is saying you can go be a day laborer you can work in a kitchen you can do whatever the fuck you want to you go start a company you know but you what you can't do is come into this area and sling drugs and the, the the public defender and the ACLU fought that shit tooth and nail, saying it was racist. See, it was criminalizing Latinos, which is a, pretty offensive to just equate working class Latinos with drug dealers. Like I wouldn't mm. find that a, 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 a flattering comparison if I were a working class Latino. But they're saying by criminalizing drug dealers, you're criminalizing working class Latinos. And 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 they're and they're basically work like these organizations are literally trying to prevent the city from being able to disrupt 
the drug trade in the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. They're doing everything they can to prevent the city from being able to arrest or even non-carceral ways of preventing people from being able to sell drugs. They are preventing that from happening. Now, the easy assumption would be that they are literally on the cartel's payroll because that's mm-hmm. the cartel was paying them. This is exactly what they would be doing. <laughs> right. I was about to say, that's, yeah, that's what they would be up to. I, 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 I don't believe that because I know how strong ideology is here. It is the 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 left. What I call the and what Michael Schellenberger and others call the left libertarian ideology is so strong that this is seen as righteous it is seen as any act of the the city so this is what i mean by left libertarianism the city government coming in and preventing drug dealers from selling drugs because it is you know the state coming in and kind of like infringing upon the rights of the of a oppressed person because of course this doesn't matter if you're not oppressed right if you're like a right, white right mainstream middle class san franciscan the state can do whatever the fuck it wants to including you have to get vaccinated or you're or you'll be fired from your job you have to get boosted you blah 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 you have to wear a mask everywhere even if the science doesn't 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 bear that out all this stuff that's fine like all that kind of like authoritarian stuff is fine but if you are a honduran drug dealer you are ipso facto a victim and therefore anything that the state does to coerce you into anything. And also same thing if you're a drug user, right? If you're a drug user, even like, and I'm not in favor of of criminalizing drug usage, but even like suggesting, like prodding drug dealers into recovery is seen by the same- Drug users into recovery. I'm sorry, drug users into recovery is seen by the same actors as stigmatizing drug users, right? Which is an offense to the dignity of the individual. And, and so this is what I'm, I mean by left-wing libertarianism. It is so resolutely and just blindly anti-statist and anti-institutionalist that, that, that like any act, no matter how reasonable and no matter how social, socially productive is seen as ipso facto oppressive and something to fight again, against. And this is where it bleeds into just outright nihilism. Because it's just like we because then it kind of gets into the like we we want to dismantle these structures of repression. We want to take apart. There should be no DA's office. There should be no police department. There should be no like all these institutions need to be ripped from the roots and dismantled. But there's no the same folks are not even interested in having a conversation about what to replace them with. Right. And the vacuum is going to create something very fucking weird like that. I mean, that's just if you have a replacement, that's literally a different conversation. Right. You're right. Like, what's this regime going to look like? What are the trade-offs that we're going to engage in? Like, what do we find acceptable? What institutions are we interested in having? Because you can't have a society without them. Right. You know, like maybe you want them to look radically differently. That's like what you're saying is that's not what's going on. What they're like, they're just like, just get rid of it. And then we'll all be free. And you've also pointed out something really interesting that there's this like biopolitical contradiction at the Mm -hmm. heart of it in terms of like the management of the health of the individual. Mm -hmm. So like vaccine, you have to do that. Like mask, you have to do that. Everybody does that. We're managing, like there are rules and laws around you doing that, but doing drugs and shitting in the street is like fine. Right. So we're not managing that to manage that would be to infringe on your Liberty. Right. So this is where I've gotten some pushback from this article already, which is fair and it's productive criticism. And I've, and it's, 
and I, you know, I was aware of it myself, but it was like that piece was already too long to be able to even. I totally know what you mean. As somebody has to write this stuff, you just, you're just like, all right, I'm going to hit publish and I'll take my right, notes. Right, exactly. I'll <laughs> yeah. write another post about this. Yeah. So, so it's uh, job security. It's job exactly, security. exactly. I'm like, great. I, I got an idea yeah. for next, week. but, but, you know, it's been pointed out that like, how can you call the left libertarian when the left has so clearly become authoritarian with, with its biopolitics and it's, and it's like pro censorship positions and all this stuff. And that's, that, that, that's absolutely true. And it's a fair criticism and it's a puzzle to work out. And first of all, you know, they don't, it's not as if there's a, it's not as if the left has to be logically consistent like it's perfectly no uh, political movement does and rarely exactly. are they in practice exactly so it's not as if it's incumbent upon anybody to have to resolve these th that contradiction there could just exist a stark contradiction within the left but the, the but then the question is well what is the origins of that con of that of that contradiction and i think again getting back to to david hackett fisher there's the the, the libertarian the, the the Scotch Irish population, you know, came into California via Southern California through the the Dust Bowl. But before that, the the population that had settled California was the same population that came from the Northeast, across the Rust Belt states, across the Midwest and the Rust Belt and the Midwest and the Great and the the whatever the the mountain range and into Pacific Northwest and down into Northern California which is the Puritans. And, and that's why that is a big, like before recent years, that was a big democratic belt, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty consistently blue voting. And the Puritans had a whole radically different political philosophy than the Scotch-Irish, which mm -hmm. was the, the opposite, which was like, they were very much, they were nanny status, right? And they were like, the, the humans are inherently whereas the scotch irish were like humans have natural liberty and natural freedom and anything that encroaches upon that is a violation of our of our god-given freedom the puritans were like humans are inherently evil and corrupt right this was calvinism Pur Pur people are inherently evil and corrupt and wayward sheep and the only in the way that we keep people in line and create a moral community is by having strong rules imposed from above and uh, and 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 those rules should be just and they should be moral and all that stuff and so like this strong state like like our morality comes from the top down was very much a fixture of puritanism and that became a very a very big part of the progressive uh outlook so what you have in california is a very contradictory set of values which is at once embraces sort of this nanny state authoritarian moralism and at the same time this like individual hyper individualistic left libertarianism mm -hmm. and so that's why you have you know people in san francisco who will at once out of one side of their mouth say yeah we should have fucking lockdowns forever and mass mandates and vaccine mandates and then also you know, we have no right to tell somebody who's taking a shit on the street or even selling, you know, selling fucking drugs right in front of me, like yeah, in yeah. front of my house. Yeah. Where if, my kids do, play. if we do anything about them, it's a return to the war on drugs, right? And it's right. like in mass incarceration and all that stuff. Those two thoughts can exist in the same head, I think, because those heads have been shaped by the confluence of these two radically different. So, yeah. So what you so what you're saying is that there are traditional cultures in America that have made their way to different parts of the country, have shaped the country, even if the population no longer reflects the original stock mm -hmm. that made their way there. 
And that that accounts for some of the dissonance that we see, that it's not just that everybody reads too much Foucault. It's not right. just that we have a deindustrializing cyber economy that shapes us in different ways and has different social assumptions or things like that, or any of that, that if those other things might be true, they're also interacting with some far longer time horizon elements about yeah. what it means to be American. Yeah, and it's important that you pointed out that you don't have to belong to that stock because Fisher does that as well. He points out mm -hmm. specifically that, like for example, in the in in the Northeast in the, in New England, you had you know waves of immigrants, obviously from yeah. everywhere, from like Southern Europe to he focuses on Southern Europe because he wrote the book in the eighties. But like you know now you have like lots of folks from Latin America, and they come and they assimilate to New England political values and they vote mm -hmm. that way. Right, even though they come from Southern Europe, where there was no like for right, when, they assimilate, where where there was no pur Puritan tradition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they assimilate, and so by the same nature, you know, like like if you look, I wrote a piece for Tablet about 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 exactly this. If you look at the maps of like of a vaccine uptake mm -hmm. in America, you find like that it roughly accords with the 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 these migrations that that. <laughs> Yeah. Fisher wrote about and like you see you know where the, the where 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 it where there's the most vaccine uptake is in that puritan belt and then you see the the least vaccine uptake is that scotch irish irish uh, belt yeah yeah the don't try and then there's the a mix in between where those that have mixed there's mixed levels of vaccine uptake so like this stuff is very 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 strongly with us today and and you don't have to and yeah you don't have to have be like yourself be like an oaky or a fucking have pure answer to share sure. that culture. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, I'm from the Midwest. I know I have like this sort of, even though my family's Irish Catholic, I basically have like Protestant Scandinavian mm -hmm. values. Right. You know, like <laughs> I've met people from all over the country and like, that's true. Right. You know, like I get fucking upset if people are too loud in public. Yeah. You know, like, I'm like, it's not about you. <laughs> and, 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 and you go and you talk in like the, the, the South to like, you know, in the border, in the border region, like in the, the Rio Grande Valley, and you'll mm -hmm. find, you know, Mexican, like folks who like, who will come from a long line of Mexicans who are like talking some pretty libertarian shit. Right? Oh yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Like that's, that's all in there, you know, like, I'm glad that we're sort of ending on this note, because I want to end just by making this final comment. Like, one of the things that I've noticed over my time being American, is that we tend to treat ideologies that emerge in our own country as if they are foreign imports, right? Like there are these exogenous elements of what's happening, that they're alien to any previous experience that we've had and they're this new puzzle and one of the things that's shocking to me is how distance we've become from our own traditions culturally you know or you know even politically and how we've thought about being i always say that it's shocking that in america there are by an order of magnitude more nietzsche scholars than emerson scholars mm. Mm. yeah you know, yeah, that's that's I was just in an argument on Twitter the other yesterday about about like somebody had said something about how Americans should travel more. And and I like as much as Europeans and I'm like, well, Europeans travel more because they can just drive to another like the equivalent of driving across half of that's, America. 
you yeah. cross like 12 countries in Europe. And I'm like, but but then but we have this assumption that like Europeans are so much more cosmopolitan because they speak three languages and and I mean some of them and and uh, and have been to so many countries because it's just like going to another state for us. Mm -hmm. And another thing that David Hackett Fisher points out, I think, in the conclusion to the book is that is that empirically he makes the case that America has is way more differentiated culturally from region from American region to American region. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And Europe is from country to country. Yeah, I've lived in, you know, the Midwest, New England, the Southeast, and Santa Fe, and California. Mm. And they were all very, very different. The two being the most different are Santa Fe, because the Spanish have been there since the 1600s. Mm -hmm. And it has a higher percentage of Native people than like any other state. Mm -hmm. So that immediately changes like the Burgundian flag flies over the main building, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the plaza downtown and California, which feels like a different country. Yeah. And like you, way, you recognize like, it as American, but the, I'm like, this is not fucking Illinois. Yeah. And by the way, the New Mexico flag, you got the Zia symbol, which is like, you know, of, which is attributed to the natives, which seems very, you know, like progressive. But the colors are barred from the conquistadors, right? That yeah, was, right. Yeah, that's that was yeah. consciously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's how we synthesize that. So, dude, this was great. It was very far ranging. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I hope we get a chance absolutely. to do this again. Absolutely loved it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Let's do it for sure. All right, people who want to read Layton's Substack, it is in the show notes. Go check it out. Go give them a follow, subscribe, whatever. We've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up behind the paywall as well. I'm talking to Mark Nelson about the sociology of the engineer sometime soon. I've got Michael Lind to come on and talk to us about democratic pluralism. And we have more Robert Hughes, American art history, hopefully coming up at the end of the month. So if you're interested in that, check out the Patreon. That is also in the show notes. As ever, stay safe out there, and we will see you next time.
Time.